Well, good morning, Mariners. It's good to see you. Good to be with you today. If you've got a Bible, take it out. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is going to be our text today. I'm so thrilled to be here. I've known of your church for many, many years and how God has been working in and through it. Uh, but particularly excited for you because Eric's, of course, one of my best friends. And I've known him for about 20 years. And I, I will tell you, honestly, there's, I just had a class. I'm a professor and I was teaching a class last week on leadership. Uh, Skyped in Eric and I said, what I'll say to the class, I'll say to you, said the same thing. Eric Iger is the best leader I've ever met or ever worked with as well. So you're going to be blessed uh, with him as your pastor. So excited for that as well. And so thankful to be able to share God's word here. I normally live in Chicago, so many times I can come to the place of eternal sunshine. It's good to actually be here as well and to experience that. Though on my flight here, I was watching on the news on the, and all of a sudden they started talking about earthquakes. So I don't really know what I'm supposed to do if stuff starts shaking, I'm just gonna run away like a screaming little girl. So I just want you to know what my plan is. That is the evacuation plan. Follow me as I scream out that door. Uh, so if you have that Bible open, 2 Corinthians chapter five, Paul's writing a letter to a church at a place called Corinth and the Corinthians have kind of, their church has become divided, corrupt in many ways. Um, it's not at a good, healthy place. So Paul's writing a letter to them and in writing that letter, he's actually admonishing them about multiple issues, including defending his own apostleship to them. They began to question him and more. So he's writing to this church that needs correction and redirection. And in the second rebuke here, his admonishment is they need to represent Jesus and his kingdom well. So so there is a broader context, which I'll touch on throughout, but I want us to apply this in our lives as we look at what it means to represent Jesus and his kingdom well, because I think in 2019, a lot of Christians have sort of lost that focus of representing Jesus. They've gotten caught up in so many other things and, and their social media reflects a hundred other things other than, for example, representing Jesus and his kingdom. So looking forward to leaning in this passage with you. We're gonna look at 2 Corinthians chapter five. Rather than read the whole passage, I'll go through the four points of the message and each of those will look at the section that it relates to. Let me tell you the whole outline. Here it is, it's four points. It's we get a new perspective, uh, we get a new perspective sent on a mission of reconciliation representing Jesus and his kingdom because of the cross. There's the whole message right there as well. If you have one of our programs, you can take it out, follow along with it. There's actually a sheet inside your program. You, the verses are already there. You can jot down anything else that you might find helpful. So looking at 2 Corinthians chapter five, number one, we get a new perspective. We get a new perspective. Let's look at the text that might come and draw from this point. It says this, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Even if we, though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. We'll get just take a look at that passage for just a second because we're gonna dwell on it for just a bit. It starts at the beginning and says, so from now on, from this point forward, from now forward, because of our new life in Christ, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't see people the way the world sees other people. Matter of fact, maybe we saw Jesus that way. It says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So the beginning of the passage is very clear. Because of our new life in Christ, we're gonna see that in just a moment, it says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ. But because of our new life in Christ, we have a new way of looking at people. We have a new way of looking at the world. This is very key for us in this entire passage, right? We've got a new look, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. 
So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We have a new set of lenses, a new look by which we perceive the world. And it has to start here, and this can often be a difficult thing, but no longer seeing people in a worldly or a human way means that we're not going to be kind of shuffled off into groups the way the world wants to shuffle us off into groups. Right now, there are large groups of Christians who are being primarily discipled by their cable news choices and primarily shaped by their social media feed. And the end result is the lenses through which they see the world are not gospel lenses, but they are indeed worldly lenses. We might say, well, I agree with those worldly lenses. Okay. But whether you agree or disagree, the Bible says, from now on, we regard no one from the point of view that the world would regard other people. Now, it reminds us of this. We've got this new look, new lenses through which we see the world. Gospel lenses cause us to see people differently. Let me say it again. Gospel lenses cause us to see people differently. Now, the passage goes on and it says that we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Then it says, therefore. Now, whenever you're reading the Bible and you see a therefore, you should ask yourself the question, what's it there for? True story. And what it's there for, it connects it with that which goes before. Right? So therefore, so in light of what we just said, that we've got a, a new look, new lenses through which we see the world, we don't see people from a worldly point of view. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. This is one of those verses that if you've been a Christian a while, you've heard before. You might have it as a refrigerator magnet, or maybe you carry it around on an index card to memorize it. It says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, right, there is new creation. There's new life. You see, the Christian life is not turning over a new leaf. It's receiving new life. And having received new life by being born again, the new creation has come, right? The old has gone. The new is here. So it's changed. It's been transformed. But the therefore connects the two. I don't want you to miss this, right? Don't miss this, right? We got a new life. It's connected to the new look, new lenses through which we see the world. A new life, a new look, new lenses through which we see the world. And through these lenses of the new life and the new lenses, we understand that, for example, 1 Corinthians 7.31 says, the world in its current form is passing away. So the world's actually passing away, but because we see rightly new life, new look, new lenses through which we see the world, we look differently at our community, at our neighbors, at our coworkers, and at our friends because a new life has given us a new look, new lenses through which we see the world. Now, by now you've seen me touch my lenses a few times, my glasses a few times. How many, how many wear glasses? Raise your hand. Four eyes everywhere. Don't be afraid. It's us. We're strong. We are strong and bold. It was hard at first, though, when I was a kid, my mother said to me, she said, Eddie, she called me Eddie, and you may not, she called me Eddie, uh, she said, Eddie, you're going you're gonna to be wearing glasses now. I went to the doctor, the eye doctor told us, we're going to be wearing glasses. I was a little bit traumatized by this. I said, Mom, they're going to make fun of me if I wear glasses to school. And she said, they won't make fun of you. I said, but Mom, I, I have an eye patch because I got a lazy eye. I got an eye patch. She said, no, they won't. They'll think you look like a cool pirate, she told me. They didn't. They just made fun of me. So they called me four eyes and I don't even know. But so fast forward a few decades and currently I have uh, three daughters. Donna's my wife and I have three daughters. They are 14, 17, and 21. 
which is both a statement of my situation and a desperate prayer request from you, <laughs> right? And they're wonderful. It's the greatest thing in the world to be the father of three daughters, though they have so many words. But anyway, that's another story for another day. So I love my three daughters, and I deeply am concerned about them, and I love them in the best way possible. So Donna, my wife, comes home, and she comes home with Caitlin, and she takes me into the other room, kind of the other side of the house, and she says, listen, and she gives me this serious look, which is basically saying, do not overreact, is the look I'm getting. She says, Caitlin is going to have to wear glasses. And I go, oh, I take a deep breath. I go back to my childhood. I remember the, the challenge. And I said, it's okay. I'll be fine. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be relaxed. So I, um, I actually go in and I sit down with Caitlin just casually. She's 13 at the time. She's in middle school. And I, and I say, hey, Caitlin, so I hear you're going to have to wear glasses. You know, that's no big deal. People wear glasses all the time now. And, and she looks at me and she totally sees through my attempt at comforting her, which she does not feel that she needs. So she speaks to me uh, in that tone of voice that middle schoolers sometimes speak to their fathers, and she wants to roll her eyes, but she's not allowed to roll her eyes at her father, so she's mentally rolling her eyes, and I can hear it in her voice. <laughs> if you have kids too, you might rec recognize that. So she says, Dad, that's the roll, Dad, but not the eye. The eyes are like this. Dad, got children, you know what I'm talking about. She says, Dad, listen, glasses are cool today. You're, you're totally, don't need to be worried about this, right? She says, she says, people today wear glasses for fashion. She says, my friends go to the store and they buy frames with no prescriptions in them because it's cool to wear glasses. And she wants to totally put me at ease, and she does. And I, and I, I, think, to, I think to myself, so happy for her and so bitter about my own childhood still. <laughs> I was born at the wrong time when glasses are cool and comic books are cool and all the things that weren't cool. Well, anyway, I gotta move on from there. <laughs> that escalated quickly, sorry about that. Um, so, so my, 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 my daughter, though, she wears glasses for fashion. She's like, oh, I'm going to wear my glasses. I don't, even if I don't need a prescription, I don't wear glasses for fashion. I wear them for seeing. And that works for me because if I don't have my glasses in the right place, I can't see you. If they get knocked around and they get near the bottom of my nose, you're, now, you're no longer in my field of vision. You are now gone. Welcome back. Right there. I can see you. I can say goodbye, everybody, and welcome back. That's how my glasses work, because I can't see well. And so, so, but my daughter wears glasses for fashion. I wear them for, for seeing. And, and again, we're reminded of these gospel glasses. They get knocked around a lot in 2019. My glasses get knocked around because I move my head when I talk. But in the world in which we live, man, our gospel lenses are getting knocked around a lot. They need pretty regular adjusting or resetting. Well, uh, I'm the interim teaching pastor of a church in Chicago uh, called the Moody Church. It's a church that's in downtown Chicago. It's been around a long time. Anyone ever been there? Just raise your hand if you've ever been there. Just a few folks have been there. Yeah. Kind of, it's, it's, we have a TripAdvisor rating, and we're really, it appears pretty good as a tourist attraction. Um, and so, but it's interesting because the, the church has been there for over a century, and it had these really well known pastors, like a guy named Erwin Lutzer recently became Pastor Emeritus. It was a guy named Warren Wearsby, Harry Ironside. So, this long heritage. But what that means is there's a lot of kind of people who've been to the church over a hundred years that are now all over the country. 
And so, or the world. So when you make maybe some changes or you do something differently than the former pastor, uh, everybody has an opinion on it. And sometimes they send letters. Now I know you would never send letters to Pastor Eric like the ones I've gotten. But I was at times, there was times I was getting like two a week when you said, you know, Pastor, you're, you're not wearing a tie. Pastor, you're, you know, you moved the pulpit. Oh, there was a few letters that day. Um, you put a screen up. There were some letters there. Also some super encouraging letters too. Don't misunderstand. It's a wonderful, wonderful church. But I got this one letter that, that really stuck out, reminded me of something I thought a good principle. And so what I, what I did is, is I actually just took my, took my iPhone and I held my iPhone and I took a little screenshot of it and I edited off the top where it said, dear pastor, thank you so much. And, uh, and, and the bottom where this person signed his name. And I thought I'd share you the actual unedited letter. Let's take a look. Here's what it says. He writes me, I listened to your August 13th sermon at Moody Church Online. Unedited, I didn't fix any typos or anything. After listening to it once, praise God, he's at least a double listener. After listening to it once, I listened again. This is great because I was awestruck, praise God, with the number of times you adjusted your glasses while preaching. So the second time I listened, I saw in the first 36 minutes of your sermon, you adjust your glasses 74 times. And then you took them off, he writes, so I counted no further. This was an average. It appears he takes a break, gets a calculator, comes back. <laughs> this was an average of once every 30 seconds, he writes me. But keep in mind, this was an incomplete count because some of the time scripture or your sermon was on the screen, he writes, and I could not see you. I tell you this in Christian love. <laughs> Every one of those letters always seem to include that at some point. Because I know you're interested in being aware of anything that may distract listeners from hearing what you are preaching slash teaching. So I hope you will accept this knowing that I want your ministry to be as effective for Christ as possible. He signs his name. Don't misunderstand. This guy really was being nice. And I did make changes since that time. I was watching this uh, show, uh, Shark Tank. And there was this like product called Nerd Wax, where if you put it right in here, it actually causes your glasses to slip less. And so, so I use Nerd Wax now. And I know I saw a couple of you, all men, turn to somebody with you and say, I'm going to count how many times he touches his glasses from now to the end of the sermon. Don't be that guy. Nobody likes that guy. Don't be that guy. Right? <laughs> But here's the thing, I don't wear glasses and I don't adjust them for fashion, I adjust them for seeing. And in 2019, in a time like many of us have not experienced for decades, it's sort of grown in the division of the world, the tumultuous times in which we live, the division, the vitriol, the outrage. One of the things that Pastor Eric asked me to do was to share from this book I've written called Christians in the Age of Outrage, bringing our best when the world is at its worst. And right now in the midst of time, the world is often at its worst and it's divided. And for too many Christians, they're joining in with the worldly way of viewing other people, filled with anger and vitriol and their social media looks like a running, uh, just complaint train. You say, well, Ed, you, you think I can't say whatever I want on social media? I'm an American, I can say whatever I want. Of course you can. 
What, what, what I would say is, man, you would say, well, I'm just being frank. Listen, if your name's not Frank, please stop. <laughs> and if your name is Frank, get that under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because the words that you and I use in social media with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our friends and family, we're here to see them through gospel lenses. And sure, it's a shaky, tumultuous time, and we gotta readjust and make sure those lenses are rightly in place. But sisters and brothers, what Jesus is calling us to do now is what he was calling the Corinthians to do 2,000 years ago. When it's a tumultuous time, when it's a broken time, when it's an angry time, our call is to get a new perspective. We got a new New life, thank God, we've got a new look and new lenses through which we see the world. Number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Sent on a mission of reconciliation. What's going on here? Well, let's look at the second part of the verse. It's actually, or the passage, it's actually pretty fascinating at multiple levels. Listen to how many times the word reconcile, I'm going to count them out with my hand, how many times the word reconcile is used in one form or another in this passage. All this is from God. So it's talking about what goes before. All this is from God who reconciled, there's one, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. There it is four times in two short verses, four times in two verses that we've been reconciled to now have this ministry of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to now have this message of reconciliation. Something has been given to us because of what God has done in us. Let me say it again. Something's been given to us because of what has been done in us. And what has been given to us is a ministry of reconciliation. What comes from us is that message of reconciliation. So you don't miss this, right? Your life is to exist in many, many reasons to glorify God. But one of them is to show and share the love of Jesus in the midst of a broken and hurting world. Now, Mariner's Church, you've been doing that for a long time, and right now you've gone through a pastoral transition, and, and your new pastor is someone I deeply love and deeply appreciate, and I, I have great confidence in the future of your church, and, and I hope you do as well, but what I want you to know is the future of your church is largely determined by whether or not you will say yes to joining Jesus on his mission on a continual basis, as you have done for decades. Now, now why does it matter? Because here's the deal. I, I know about your church. Right? I, I was a researcher three years ago before I became a professor. I ran a research team. And for about 10 years, about a decade, I was tracking churches all across America. We have files on over 10,000 churches in our office, including yours. But yours is in a special section. It's in a special section with a special tag. We call them freakishly abnormal churches. <laughs> and that's yours. But in a good way. For the glory of God, because how, so many of you have come to faith in Christ here, and the gospel's been shared from this pulpit and other places and in communities and more, and it's freakishly abnormal for the kingdom of God. And thank God. You say, but Ed, what's the future of the church? I don't know. As long as the gospel's central, I can have confidence that it's bright. See, I don't know the future. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I work at a nonprofit organization. I don't know. <laughs> but here's what I know. I know that a church that recognizes it's full of reconciled people who want to then take up the ministry of reconciliation and spread the message of reconciliation, its future, future is exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think for the glory of God. And that encourages me. 
Well, that means each of us has to take that task up, having been reconciled to become agents of reconciliation. Because somebody told you, if you're a follower of Jesus, and somebody told that person, and somebody told that person, it goes back 2,000 years till Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. So we're on this, this great commission highway that goes back 2,000 years. Kind of reminds me of an incident just not that long ago. The first person to try to share the gospel with me in Chicagoland, where I live, was an Uber driver. Let me tell you about her. We, uh, we're going down, I, it was last winter, it gets cold in February in Chicago. I know you are familiar with the concept of cold. Um, but we, I was speaking in Florida, whenever winter and speaking in Florida in the same, 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 same sentence, Donna says, I'm coming. And so she comes along with me. So we get in our Uber and we start heading to the airport. And uh, when we get in the car, James, her name, the Uber driver, she says, welcome, come grab a seat. And it says, if you need any charging for your phone, you know, I got the plugs. And if you want any water, there's water bottles in the back seats, pockets, and, and take anything you want from the middle. And we looked down in the middle and there was this little box, a basket, if you will, filled with candy and a strategically placed pocket New Testament. So we knew the game was afoot. And so... So I looked over at Donna and I spoke to her and we've been married over 30 years so we actually used telepathy to communicate to one another. So I looked over to her and I said to her using telepathy, let's run with this and see how far it goes. So she kind of smiles and nods and so we start driving to the airport, it's about a 30 minute drive and Jane just starts talking to us, where are you from, she asks. And I'm from New York, outside of New York City on Long Island, Donna's from Canada. Uh, what brought you to town? I said, I got a new job. Didn't want to tell her what. I said, I got a new job. And how long have you lived here? About two years at the time. So we started this conversation. And it was going great. And we were just kind of smiling because she was slowly asking more and more spiritually related questions. She asked me at one point, what do you do? And I needed to quickly change the subject. So I said, I'm a teacher. What do you do? And she said, well, I'm a realtor. And she just kept going. And, and so finally she gets to the place where she, well, she asks this, well, do you guys have any religious background or spiritual beliefs? And at this point, Donna looks at me and she speaks to me telepathically and says, you have to tell her. She's the godly one in the marriage. And, uh, and so I say, yeah, she's right. So I lean forward and say, Jane, actually, yes. Yes, um, we do. I'm actually a professor at Wheaton College. As a matter of fact, I teach evangelism and you are doing so great right now. And she laughed and she smiled. And I said, Jane, can I just take out my phone, turn on voice recorder and do an interview with you? And if you want to actually learn more about Jane, just Google Jane the Uber driver because it got picked up by some radio stations and some news magazines and just told Jane the Uber driver's story. You see, Jane knew that she had been reconciled to God and now she was given the ministry of reconciliation. She knew she'd been changed by the power of the gospel. Now she was to share the message of reconciliation. She was reconciled to share reconciliation. But so are you, and so am I. So we get on that plane, we fly down to Florida. And the next morning, we wake up to the news around the world that Billy Graham has died. Some of you remember that day. Some of you might remember where you were. He's the most influential Christian leader of the last century. And fast forward a week or so, we're at the funeral. Um, maybe you watched it on television. We called it Billy Graham's Last Crusade. Millions and millions heard the gospel. I had the privilege of being the radio announcer for the funeral. It's hard to do, hard to think of seeing a funeral without being there, being having eyes on it like television. So we walked people through via radio. 
And the gospel was pronounced and proclaimed and many responded. It was a beautiful thing. Beforehand though, it was news reporters everywhere. And the New York Times news reporter came up to me and she said, and we happen to be friends, I know her, she writes for religion for them. And she says, ask the normal questions. What do you think Billy Graham's influence will be? I hold the Billy Graham chair at Wheaton College where he's a graduate along with Ruth, his wife. And said, so what, what do you think you know, his legacy will be? What's the future of evangelicalism? And then she asked the question that everybody asks and there's not really an answer. Who's the next Billy Graham? He goes, nobody in the family claims that role or title. Nobody should. He was a unique man that God used in his time. But I was ready. She said, who's the next Billy Graham? And I said, Jane, the Uber driver. (laughs) And she looked at me with this puzzled look and a smile. And I explained it to her. And she said, that's a great story. But it's not making the New York Times. (laughs) But that's okay, because Jane's not shooting for the New York Times. She's shooting that the Lamb of God might see lives changed, that names might be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss the reality that you too have the same message that Jane and that Billy Graham and that the person who told you have. You've been reconciled if you're a follower of Jesus. You've been reconciled to God by Christ so that now you might take the mission of reconciliation and share the message of that. Now here's my concern. I've seen the numbers. I've done the statistics. Most Christians are not sharing their faith, right? And yet we know for 2,000 years, there's been this great commission highway that somebody told somebody, told somebody, told somebody, told you, and praise God that you've been reconciled to be an agent of reconciliation because you're on the end of this great commission highway. I'm just asking you, don't let your life be a cul-de-sac on the great commission highway. Your call is the same as all of us who follow Jesus. We've been reconciled to be now the messengers of reconciliation. So number one, we get a new perspective, a new life, a new look, new lenses through which we see the world. Number two, we're sent on a mission of reconciliation, right? At the end of a great commission highway, we don't let our lives become dead ends on that great commission highway. Number three, we are representing Jesus and his kingdom. This is the heart of the passage. Paul's defending his apostleship to some degree here. He's actually most specifically referring to himself and the band of missionaries that he's with when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, he says, referring to himself and the missionaries that he was with. But for 2,000 years, Christians have heard that and said, he's talking about us. That ambassadorial role is ours as well, and it is. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Fifth time in three verses, the word reconciled in one form or the other. See, this is the great marching order. Paul's talking about himself, but it's true for all Christians. Jesus said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Matthew 6, 33. So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. You're a citizen of the kingdom if you're a follower of Jesus. Paul writes in Colossians, we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You're a citizen of the kingdom that's not of this world, a king who's not of this world, and therefore you represent him as an ambassador. But the kingdom arrived when the king showed up, and as citizens of the kingdom, we represent him as ambassadors in the midst of a pretty tumultuous and divided world right now. Now, don't think that it's that hard, though. It sometimes has to be considered by measure of scale. 
Maybe your coworker might raise an eyebrow. Maybe your family member might say, don't tell me again, you've already told me. Maybe your neighbor might say, you know, they're a little too religious for our tastes. But you know, there's only two times in our Bible the word ambassador is used in English. It's one here in 2 Corinthians 5. And the other's actually in Ephesians. Let me read it to you. Paul writes, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. That's a beautiful expression for every Christian. But then he reminds us where he is when he says this, for I am an ambassador in chains. He was locked up in prison at this time saying, pray that I might boldly share the good news with my captors, those who imprisoned me. Pray that I might declare it fearlessly as I should. You know, that verse, I've probably read it a thousand times. But it became so much more real to me at our Wheaton College graduation ceremony just a few weeks ago now, maybe a couple months ago now. The graduation speaker was a Wheaton College graduate by the name of Andrew Brunson. The name Andrew Brunson may be familiar to you because he was locked in a Turkish prison for two years unjustly on trumped up charges. In fact, he's a convicted terrorist. That's how the president introduced him at our graduation services. This is the first time a convicted terrorist is speaking to a graduation at Wheaton College. But those charges in that day in court were both trumped up and unjust. And so what happens is he goes into prison because they want to trade him. The Turkish government wants to trade him for somebody they want in Pennsylvania. And so for two years, many of us speak out. We hold prayer vigils at Wheaton College. Maybe many of you might be involved in some of that. People wrote letters. President Trump spoke up. Uh, Ambassador Brownback and others spoke up. Uh, Congressmen and women spoke up and said, we've got to get him out of this unjust prison. And when he shared at graduation, it was really moving. He shared, he said, I broke in prison. They, they broke my spirit. They broke my will. And he said, but I kept trying to tell them about Jesus all that I could. My guards and my fellow prisoners kept pointing them to Jesus. And as he shared that, I, this verse came to my mind because here's a guy who in 36 hours went from a Turkish prison where he was unjustly imprisoned but kept trying to represent Jesus, an ambassador in chains, and in 36 hours he was in the Oval Office of the White House. And many of you saw that moment when he said, can I pray right now? And he got down on his knees and he prayed for the president and he prayed for our country and he prayed for the gospel to go forth. Here's the deal. You don't know where you will be an ambassador, but you know you're called to be one. And Brunson was. Number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Number three, representing Jesus and his kingdom. Number four, and finally, because of the cross. And and I'll close with this. You know what it means when a guest speaker says, I'll close with this at the last service? Absolutely nothing. But I will close with this. Because of the cross, and it's interesting, the passage takes a pretty sudden and stunning turn. Everything up to before now is we're getting a new perspective. We see people differently. We're going to share the message of reconciliation. We're going to to be like ambassadors representing Jesus to them. And then in verse 21, it takes a very theological turn. Here's what it says. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Very sudden turn and a lot of pronouns and prepositions. So let's break this down a bit. God made Him who had no sin is Jesus. God made Jesus, God the Son, born Jesus the Christ. God made Jesus to be sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the very righteousness of God. Let me tell you what's going on here. 
right, is talking about something significant that your sin, Jesus didn't just die for your sin on the cross and in your place. He actually was made your sin. Your sin was deposited into Jesus. Now this is significant because God has always existed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's never been a time when he's not been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy, sinless, righteous, and perfect, without stain and without sin. But then God the Son was born Jesus the Christ. He got an upfront look at what sin looked like. He saw its death, the stench of it, and the filth of it. Not that God was unaware of this, but here God the Son, born Jesus the Christ, lives a sinless life. But he knows he's going to the cross not just to die, but to die for your sin by becoming your sin. The God of all the universe, God the Son, holy and perfect and righteous, is not just going to die for your sin, but he's going to be made your sin. So he sweats blood in the garden and says, Lord, if this cup would pass from me, but nevertheless your will, but mine. And then he's nailed to a cross, and at one point he yells out, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because all of the sins you and I have committed were imputed to Jesus. That's the technical word. It's imputation. Would you say that word with me? Imputation. Let's say it again. Imputation. I believe if you can learn to order coffee at Starbucks, you can learn some theological language at church. So imputation, my sin was imputed to Jesus, theologians call it, so that Jesus' righteousness, don't miss the rest of the passage, right? That Jesus' righteousness could be imputed or deposited in me. So when God looks at me and you now, if you're a follower of Jesus, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus' righteousness. But what does that have to do with the other parts of the passage? So a situation in my childhood reminds me of what it does. I grew up on Long Island outside of New York City and my family kind of went broke. My grandfather retired from the fire department, moved down to Florida, bought some houses, rented them out. My dad and our family followed a little ashamed because my dad couldn't find work and we started over. We moved into one of my grandfather's houses and my grandfather hadn't done much work on them. The, the house was a mess. It, it had a door, but it was torn off to the side when we showed up. And I think technically a house without a door is a cave, but we walked into the cave, a house, and who was in rough shape. My dad started to fix it up. He didn't have a job and do it as best we could. And some things that went wrong with it. One thing was it was in Orlando, outside of Orlando, in an undeveloped part of the town. We lived in an orange grove. I'd never seen an orange grove in my life. Now I lived in the woods in my idea. I could hear animals. I was nervous about them. My mother said, hey, listen, there's no air conditioning, but there's this big exhaust fan in the middle of the house that when we turn it on, it's going to suck all the hot air out. So don't worry. And it really did. It sucked all the hot air out and sucked in a bunch of new hot air right behind it. <laughs> but by then, my trust in my mother was low and I knew that she was trying to make us feel better. So about three weeks in, all the plumbing in the house clogged at the same time. Never seen anything like it before in my life. Um, and it, the bathroom, there were only two bathrooms and a sink in the kitchen. It was the master bathroom, the three kids, we shared a bathroom in the kitchen. But everything clogged up at the same time. And my dad was furious. He got on the phone with my grandfather. They yelled, shared some words I can't share in church uh, and said, get over here and fix this. So my grandfather calls me up about 20 minutes later, says, Eddie, I need you to meet me outside. I don't know why. He said, I need you to meet me outside with a shovel. He says, we're going to dig something up in the yard. And I'm like, really? This sounds fascinating. That's all I know, right? I don't know. I'm 12 years old. I know nothing other than my grandfather had a fight with my dad, and now I'm meeting him in the yard to dig something up. 
All kinds of things come to mind, but my grandfather's a super smart guy, so I assume the best that he has found a map left by Ponce de Leon. And in the back of my yard, there's an X, and that X has got buried treasure in it. Oh, and I assure you, it was quite a treasure. So, so we went outside, and we went to a back area in the yard that was particularly green and particularly lush. A little bit of a mound. I had no idea. I'm a city kid without any idea what's going on here. Soon to be horrified. So I, I start digging where he tells me to dig, and it doesn't take long, and I hit a box buried in my yard. Imagine you're a 12-year-old city kid. There's a box buried in your yard. You say, Grandpa, there's a box buried in your yard. He says, I know. You, let's uncover it. I'm like, of course we're going to uncover it. So I start digging it up, and there's this good-sized box buried in my yard. And my grandfather says, well, we're going to open it. I said, you bet we're going to open it, Grandpa. And he, and he gives me this iron rod with this strange grin on his face. And, and I take the iron rod and I kind of notch the top of the cover and I, and I lift it up and push it to the side and sweet mother of pearl. There's, there's a box of poop in my yard. I didn't check with Pastor Eric if I'd use the word poop. So if you want to send him a letter, just go ahead, you know, whatever. But I mean, just picture yourself, you're a 12 year old city kid and there's a box of poop in your yard. You have no idea why this would be the case. Who is storing this in the yard? <laughs> so my grandfather at this point knows that I have discovered the horror of this moment. So he says, well, don't worry, Eddie, it's your family. And I'm like, I don't care if it's the Queen of England. <laughs> it's a box in our yard. I never played in that grassy area again when I learned what a septic field was. So he says to me, well, we got to unclog it. And I'm like, we? So we renegotiate my fee, and my job is to get up to the edge of the septic tank, it's called, and take the iron rod and kind of get to the place where we ultimately take it, and I, and I kind of unclog any of my family. Um, <laughs> so I'm sort of leaning over, and I can't, because there's a pipe. He tells me there's a pipe coming in, the pipes go out, I've learned all this stuff, and, and I can't get it. He says, well, listen, I'll hold your shirt so you can lean over more. <laughs> So he gets my shirt and says, and he tries to be funny, and I piled up the dirt around him. He piles, tries to be funny. He says, don't fall in, Eddie. And I do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm standing up to my knees in my family. <laughs> and it's the most horrible, still to this day, it just leaves... My grandfather's laughing. My family soon's come out. I'm holding an iron rod, watching them laugh, thankful that they're family because I can't use the rod for anything. And it was the grossest day of my life. And it's a true story. That's not like a preacher story. That really happened. But you know how you felt even when I described it? I felt way worse than you were like, oh, I was like, oh, it was the most disgusting thing. Because here's the deal. God designed you to want to get away from human waste, right? If you, if you walk, or waste of any kind, if you walk into a room, you're gonna be like, oh, you just leave the room just like that. People make jokes about that, right? So you know you are designed to get away from that. You don't want it near you. You don't want it on you. You certainly don't want it in you. You wanna get away from this because that's the way you're designed. I don't want you to miss this theological truth here. 
the God of all the universe is holy and righteous and just forever with no imperfection, with no sin, pure holiness. And then God the Son is born Jesus the Christ, lives a sinless, pure, holy life. He sees the stench of it, he sees the destruction of it, but he lives a sinless life. But he knows what's going to happen on the cross. He's gonna, he knows that on the cross, it's not just that he dies for our sin. Maybe we're familiar with Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we think about, okay, so Jesus died for our sin, but he didn't just die for our sin. He was made our sin so he could have victory over our sin, so he could defeat it. He took the punishment for it. He took the wrath required of it. He goes to the grave and he has victory over it. God raises him from the dead on the third day so you can receive the righteousness of Christ in your life. But what does that have to do with the rest of the passage? Here's what it has to do with. It actually has everything to do with the rest of the passage. Because you say, Ed, I, I can't imagine seeing people differently. I've kind of got my opinions and they're shaped by the world. And, but then I can when I think of the fact that Jesus became sin on the cross for me and gave me his righteousness. Then I can get a new perspective. I got this new life, new look, new lenses through which I see the world. When I get that Jesus became sin for me and gave me his righteousness, then I can say I've been reconciled and I'm on a ministry with a message of reconciliation that my life won't be a cul-de-sac on the Great Commission Highway because he became sin for me and gave me his righteousness. And then I can think that there's so many things that I can get busy with, but I can represent Jesus and his kingdom. Why? Because he became sin for me. And gave me his righteousness. So sisters and brothers, when we think about the beauty of what's happening here, we can sing hallelujah, praise the one. And actually, in just a moment, we're going to sing that very song. But as we go up in worship, when we think about the chasm, the distance, the brokenness between us and a perfect God that was bridged by God, the perfect son who became sin for us, we can then with confidence sing of the beauty and praise the name of the one who has bridged the chasm. But we can't just go up in worship. We have to go out in mission. So as we go from this place, can we remember that we get a new perspective, new life, new look, new lenses, sent on a mission of reconciliation? The great chasm, how great the chasm that lay between us, how high the mountain I could not climb, yet Jesus comes, reconciles us, so we can be agents of reconciliation, representing Jesus and the kingdom because of the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge today that by grace and through faith you have redeemed us and called us by name. You've sent us on a mission for your name's sake. Father, I pray that as we remember how great the chasm that lay between us, we remember that you became sin to bridge that divide. And you imputed your righteousness to us just as our sin was imputed to you. Father, we, would we respond as Paul reminds us to, to represent Jesus in his kingdom? Just with your head bowed, your eyes closed for just a moment, if you're worshiping with us at home, and online, just take just a moment and say, Lord Jesus, is my life representing you? Am I driven by the fact that what took place on the cross causes me to look at people differently, to tell them of this reconciliation in Christ and to represent Jesus in his kingdom? If that's not where you are, as we even sing this song of worship, can I ask you to pray to the Lord, Lord, here I am, send me. 
Thank you for coming for me. But Lord, remind us that you've also sent me. So Jesus, may you receive the glory and honor and praise. And may your people here today live more faithfully and fruitfully on mission. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.